it is by the power of your word, God, that we are changed to be made more like him, and that is our desire, to glorify you. Be with us this morning, God, and fill us in ways beyond our imagining and our thoughts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 3. We are taking some time this summer to, to go through the Psalms. <clears throat> we'll get to uh, Psalm 7 or 8 all together, so if you like to read ahead, <clears throat> next week we'll be on Psalm 4. And the week after that will be Psalm 5, and I think you can figure that out, so you can be reading the text ahead of time and praying through that. Um, so today we're in Psalm 3. And this is a beautiful psalm, but it's one that deals with very painful things. And that's one thing I like about God's Word, is that it doesn't just paint a rosy picture of the Christian life. Um, But the Bible shows life as it is. It shows Christians as we experience pain, as we wrestle with suffering, as we wrestle with things like love and self-worth. In fact, as I'm writing this, as I was writing this sermon this last week, I was receiving text messages continually coming up on my screen um, from my uncle who's in ICU with stage four pancreatic cancer. And he's wrestling with who God is, who he is, what does salvation look like, especially with regards of pain and suffering. And so it was just, it was interesting writing this sermon in light of very real person who is, is wrestling with, um, with pain and with who God is and how do you walk through this. And I know that as we gather today, we, and as every week, we gather um, as people that come from various backgrounds, that we all come with a story, we all come with some type of history into this room, and there are some of you who are coming and experiencing pain, who are experiencing suffering right now. Some of you are experiencing self-worth, are struggling with self-worth. Um, and there's so many more issues that we come with every single morning. And I think um, possibly a, some type of cliche line that was given by churches years ago, and maybe even today, was, you know, you can just check your problems at the door. Um, but where does that happen? If you don't check your problems at the door, then you walk in here and suddenly they're all gone. Um, and then when you leave here, the problems will get picked up again. But rather, we, we walk in here and as we sit and as we talk and as we sing, we have these burdens that are on our heart. How do we go forth? What do we do? Um, and so I want to just pray as we look at this psalm that we would be open, that our hearts would be open to hear the truth and the comfort of God's Word. And so uh, I'm going to do it in reverse order. Sometimes I read the psalm and then we pray, but I want to pray first before we go into the psalm. Our Father, we come to you. and We're specifically going to look at your Word now. And we know that, that your Word gives life. We know that your Word reveals you, your character, who you are, what you have done. Your word points us to our need for Jesus and the cross and salvation. Your word is sufficient. 
in all ways. Your Spirit loves to work through your Word. That you would convict us of sin, that you would comfort us, that you would rebuke us, that you would encourage us, that you would refine us. And so, Father, I just pray right now that we just experience your comfort and your love and your encouragement and even your refining as we look at your word. And God, I thank you that you have given us your word, a word that is perfect and sufficient in every way to equip us as believers to live as you have called us. In your name, Jesus, amen. One thing we do here is we stand when we read God's word. We stand in the honor of God because we believe he has written it and his word is like no other. So I want to invite you to stand. Psalms 3 is is fairly short, so hopefully you'll be able to stand the entire time. But if you need to sit down, that is okay. Chapter 3, the title, A Psalm of David When He Fled from Absalom His Son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on on your people, Selah. You all may be seated. As I said last week, the Psalms are hard for me. Um, They're not my genre of choice. Um, I said one thing, I think it's good to try to read it in the way that it was meant to be written. Um, And I said one thing we need to do is try to figure out context. And this Psalm, it's easy. This is an easy Psalm to know the context because it's given a title. Not all Psalms are given this, so it's wonderful when we're given a title. Um, And we see a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. In 2 Samuel 15, we read of Absalom's rebellion. Each day, Absalom, the son of David, he would go down to the gate, and people would come to the gate where they would then be desiring to seek the king or some official who would help them with their disputes and their problems. And so Absalom kind of intercepted them. And he would stand there and he'd go, Oh, there's no one to see you about your problem. There's no one to answer you. There's no one to help you. The king is too busy. The king has not appointed anyone. The king can't help you. And then he would say, but if I was king, I would help you. He doesn't say I would appoint people. He says I would help you. In fact, I would listen to every single case that was given because Absalom would be the perfect king. At least that's how he communicated it. And so Absalom slowly stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And when he had gathered enough men, he announced himself king. And because of the numbers that he had, David felt like he was forced to flee the kingdom. So David and his mighty men, they fled from the kingdom. And David, now now picture this, David is fleeing because his own son has rebelled against him, kicked him out of his kingdom. And as he's running, probably in pain and in and, and confusion about what has happened, those whom he has loved and those whom he has helped also reject him. 
And then we're told that as he's leaving and as he's going through the wilderness, there's a man named Shimei. And in 2 Samuel 16, we're told, he says, Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. So here we have now a man mocking him and reviling him. So this is the context that we come into this psalm. So we're just going to kind of walk through it. And we see in verses 1 and 2, a problem has occurred. We know what the problem is because of the title. David has been betrayed by his own son. He's been rejected by his people. Those who loved him now hate him. Shimmy's words are sinking deep in. Words like, you're evil. You're worthless. You're a man of blood. Those who have betrayed him shout out, not even God will help you. We see there in the last line of verse 2, there's no salvation for him in God. That's what people are saying. You're worthless. God's not going to save you. You have no hope. Probably in light of this, David is wrestling with the thought, man, no one loves me. And if no one loves me, I wonder if God loves me. God might not love me either. And then we come to the word selah which this word occurs about 70, 71 times in the Psalms. Uh, There's some type of confusion at times on what it exactly means. But for the most part, it seems like it occurs to... um, for the reader to simply pause and to reflect on the text. And to simply just say, what is happening here? To reflect on our own life, to reflect on who God is, to reflect as we read now and where we stand in history on this side of the cross to say, what does this tell us about Jesus and the cross? And so that's what we're going to do as we come to each of these words, um, which it appears three times in this text. And so I ask you, have you ever been betrayed by someone close to you? That's what's happened here. David's been betrayed. All those who love him have rejected him. Selah. Have you ever experienced rejection? Have you ever been taken advantage of? Emotionally? Physically? Sexually? Maybe you've experienced rejection. Perhaps in a marriage, you've had a spouse who has cheated on you. And you feel rejected. You feel shamed because of that. Perhaps you've been rejected by a mother or a father. Perhaps you've been rejected by friends. Perhaps if you're a student and you're in in junior high or high school or college, um, those are difficult times. How do you fit in? What does that look like? Maybe you've experienced rejection there. Maybe that rejection has carried on throughout your life. Maybe you feel rejected or different at work. Possibly you're struggling right now with who God is. Maybe you're here and you're wrestling with salvation. Am I really saved? Am I not really saved? How can I be saved if I keep experiencing this struggle with these sins? Maybe you're wondering, how can God love me if life is so painful and so hard? Maybe you're going through something. You're saying, if God is really good, would he let me go through this? So what do you do? How do you go forward? That's that's where we're at in this text. One thing we see is the next kind of point is a new conversation must begin. We see that in verses 3 and 4. A new conversation must begin. So many years ago, I picked up a book uh, called Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Let me just say this. Anything by Martin Lloyd-Jones is good. Pick it up. It'll do your soul well to read it. Um, But this book in particular was um, 
It was amazing just in, in my life. And in fact, I didn't even have to get past chapter one until I was just like, oh, uh, the book paid for itself. It was a good book. Um, in this book, Spiritual Depression, Martin Lloyd-Jones seeks to equip and encourage believers on how they can overcome struggles. And it really doesn't matter what struggle, anything that we go through as Christians that then plague us emotionally, spiritually, physically, how do we proceed through them? And in chapter 1, I found this most helpful wisdom that has profoundly helped me, and I hope that it helps you. The quote is in your bulletin, it's on, your, on the screen, and I have it before me, so we cannot miss this. Um, he writes... I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. He says, you have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. He then said, we must go on to remind yourself of God, of who God is, what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. So let me... Let's look back at this psalm and let's just see how this happens. David's been betrayed by his son. To so just think about the hurt that would go into that. Your own blood son has, has rejected you, says you can't be king, you're worthless, I'm going to be king. Those whom he has loved and served and helped have rejected him, have returned against him. And so if like if most likely he begins listening to himself right now, this is the types of things that he will hear himself say. My son has betrayed me. I'm probably a terrible father. My friends have left me. Obviously, I'm not a good friend. Nobody loves me. There's no way I can be king. In fact, I should never have been king. I should have stayed in the fields with the sheep. They're the only ones who have loved me. I'm not wanted by anyone. My family doesn't want me. My friends don't want me. Surely God doesn't want me either. Have you ever heard yourself say something like that? Just wrestling with life and life just comes at you and because of some type of experience that you've gone through, all of a sudden your emotions are, are running almost out of control and that's what you hear. You hear it at night. When you go to sleep, you hear it in your dreams, you hear it when you wake up, you hear that small voice as you go through anything during the day, you're worthless. Nobody wants you. Nobody needs you. So this is where David is, and possibly this is where you're at today. So what do we do? What does it look like to stop listening and start talking? Well, what we see here in verse 3 is that David reminds himself of who God is and what he has done. So we begin to talk to ourselves. We don't just listen. Listening to ourselves is a passive action. Your mind is just running rampant because of the experiences around you, and it's just it's controlled by those, that emotion, often very sinful. And so then we must begin to speak to ourselves or preach to ourselves. Or as Martin Lloyd Jones says, you take yourself in hand. And so what does it that David does? In verse 3, David said, God is a shield about him. So David asserts that God is strong and is able to protect him. Now, is this just David being, you know, uh, positive thinking? I'm sure God is strong. Surely he's strong. I hope God is strong. 
No, it's, it's nothing about positive thinking. What, what David does is he looks back at his life and at the history of Israel and God's people, and he sees things like, God has protected me all these years against King Saul when he tried to kill me. God protected Israel in Egypt. God protected Israel as they went through the wilderness and gave them protection as they went into the promised land. And so based upon historical facts, David looks and he says, this is who God is. God is a shield to his people. Therefore, I know God is a shield for me and I can continue to trust in him. He then says, God is my glory and the lifter of my head. Sin seeks to bring us down. Sin wants to weigh us down so that we feel worthless, unloved, and unwanted. Which is exactly where David feels right now. Maybe that's how you're feeling. And so, David asserts the fact that God is the one who lifts our head. He says, God is my glory. I mean, you are everything. You are the one who sustains us. David has seen this throughout the life of Israel again. He looks back and he sees that Israel has not always been faithful. Israel has sinned. Israel has created idols. And yet, God is faithful and God is merciful. And God continues to lift the head of Israel. And at the end of verse 4, David cries aloud to God, and God answers him. And here we see two amazing things. Number one, David is talking to God. And number two, God answers him. That's pretty amazing, right? David is talking to God, and God listens and answers. So we'll look at how he answered in a moment. But let me encourage you, never stop talking and crying aloud to God. Don't stop. Sin will tell us that because of suffering, because of pain, because of the experience, we can't talk to God. Or it'll say that God doesn't really want us to talk to him, or he doesn't hear us, or that it's pointless. Do you ever feel like that? you ever felt like that, especially when you're kind of going through a very emotional time? Does God even hear me? Does it matter if I talk to him? Sin will always try to isolate us from God and from others, One thing I've grown to appreciate, though, as as we look at the Psalms, is that we see men in great pain yelling, shouting, and crying out to God. They don't put on their nice clothes. They don't fold their hands. They don't bow and get on their knees. You ever want to have a Precious Moments Bible? Remember those? Those cute Bibles. Little precious moments, figurines, little peaceful sheep and rivers, especially in the Psalms. That doesn't exist. There's no precious moments, Bible pictures for the Psalms. Here you have David, and even when he gets to verse 7, arise, O Lord. He's commanding. He's saying, save me, O my God. This is not, O Father, save me if you have time. He's crying out to God at this moment, possibly ripping his clothes. It's crying out to God. And God listens. We don't, we don't fix ourselves. We don't have to come into this building, sit in these red chairs, good thing we don't pews, and you know, sit in a really neat way for God to hear us. We don't have to come to great theology first for God to hear us. We just begin crying out to God. So I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, never stop talking to God. Never stop talking to God. Selah. That's where we're at now. At the end of verse 4. 
So it seems like at this moment, a good question is, is what do we need to tell ourselves? What do you need to tell yourself today? Is there a sin, um, is there a sin, some kind of lie that you've been believing? What truth of God do you need to be reminded of? Do you need to be reminded that God is stronger? Do you need to be reminded that God loves you? Do you need to be reminded that God is with you? That he'll never leave you or forsake you? And there is hundreds of other truths we could, we could bring up from Scripture. See, sin will try to let our experience define us. But God's Word says we're not defined by our experience. God's Word says we're defined by who we are in relationship to Him. Have we believed in Him? If so, then we are a child of God. And therefore, He is our Father, and as a church, we are brothers and sisters. A good way to be reminded of who God is and what He has done is to talk with other believers. When you're, when you're struggling in pain, like at this moment, like David is, or wherever you're at right now, surrounding yourself with other believers is essential. And that's one of the things that our sin doesn't want us to do because we'll say things like nobody understands or we don't want to tell people our problems because far be it they know that we're not perfect and that we need God's grace. That's often why we don't tell people things because we don't want other people to know the dirt in our lives. But as Christians, isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to let people know how messed up and sinful we are and that we still must cling to the grace of God. Is it really that bad if people knew that we need God's grace every single day? If we were convinced of that, then we wouldn't hide all of our sins and our problems, but rather we would let people know them, and we would invite people into our lives to speak to us because we need God's grace. And God often uses the church, other people, to bring about that grace in our life. When we avoid community, we're falling into the snare of sin. Another way to be reminded of who God is is through his word, like what we're doing right now. And it's in God's word we see God's character. We see his amazing love and his grace. In his word we see how he loves those who are in pain and how he can use our suffering for his glory and our good. And best of all, it's in his word we see how much God loves us and that he sent his son to go through pain and suffering so that one day there would be a new heavens and a new world where we would never experience pain or suffering again. So when we come to God's word, it's, it's amazing medicine for our soul. And as we see, it, it's, it truly does give life. And let me say this, good theology, meaning a good understanding of God's word, is indispensable and invaluable during times of pain and suffering. It's indispensable and invaluable during times of pain and suffering. It won't protect you from pain and suffering, but it will equip you in those times. I've seen many people who go through pain and suffering with poor theology. And they have no idea how to respond. Good theology is so incredibly helpful during times of pain and suffering. Imagine you're going parachute jumping. Some of you know what it's like to go parachute jumping. You pay the guy at the front desk. You go and pack your own chute without any training. Is that a good idea, Isaac? Absolutely not. You get in the plane. You get about 1,000 feet up. The guy says, jump. So you say, great. You jump. You then whip out your cell phone. You call the instructor. How do I land? How do I pack a chute? 
Is that the good time to begin asking those kinds of questions? When you're free-falling? Oh. So it's good to do that training on the ground, right, Isaac? Absolutely. Isaac, Isaac knows that. Um, when you read and pray through God's word each day, you are strengthening your heart, your mind. You're fortifying yourself against the attacks of sin. You're not making yourself immune to sin, and it won't prevent you from suffering or pain, but it will equip you for those times of pain and suffering. It will equip you on how to respond to sin, on how to respond to this. It will equip you. So I want to encourage you. Be in God's Word. Sometimes we, we, we set down God's Word in the times where life seems to be going well, when life seems to be going crazy, we pick it up. And by all means, pick it up during the crazy times. But it'd be really good if we also strengthened ourselves during those seasons where we weren't going through as much suffering and pain. Now, you might be here and you say, I don't really know God's Word. How would I do this? Especially if you're maybe going through this, um, something right now, and you're going, great. So I realize it would be really good if I knew God's word before times of pain and suffering, but I'm in pain and suffering right now, so what do I do? Well, pray. Don't ever stop talking to God. Just begin praying. Remember, you don't have to fix yourself up first. Just begin praying and talking. Read. Read God's word. You haven't been reading, that's okay, pick it up anywhere. God's word is sufficient. His spirit loves to work through his word. Just begin praying. Even tell God, God, I know I haven't read your word. Be honest with him. He knows. No sense to lie to him. And just say, I haven't read. I really need help right now. And then ask him and seek out community. Ask him for community and seek out those who know God's word who can help you and encourage you at this time. There's three things at least I would do. And let me encourage you here. Maybe you're here at this moment and you're in a season where you're not experiencing pain and suffering. And those are great seasons, right? I mean, we love those seasons. Now, God will use the seasons of pain and suffering to build us, to strengthen us. So they're good. But I really love the times that we're not experiencing that too. Um, but if you're in that season, let's not just put it in cruise control but rather, I, I want to encourage you that you are a counselor. Every Christian has the Spirit of God in them that they would use the Word of God to comfort and encourage other believers. And even unbelievers, that you would shepherd them in their times of pain and suffering, that they would see their need for Jesus. You do not need a PhD to tell people about Jesus. You do not need a PhD to simply listen and to love on people. There are people all around us who are suffering. There are people all around us who are asking for help. So I want to encourage you, dig deep into God's word that he would use you in a mighty way to encourage and to comfort others. You can encourage them in things like reminding them that Jesus was betrayed by his friends. Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And when Jesus was, when Jesus was arrested, the other 11 guys all ran away too. And we're told someone ran away so fast they went naked. That's weird. But it's in the Bible, so someone did. As Jesus was crucified, many people reviled him. They said things like, he surely can't be the son of God. No good person would be crucified. People reason good people don't get crucified. We do that. Good people don't go through pain and suffering. 
Jesus cries out on the cross in Matthew 27, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, the Father turns away from the Son. We can't even begin to imagine that. They have perfect relationship with one another. They have never been separated. There's been never anything that has distorted their relationship. And then at the cross, the Father turns away from the Son, and the Son is rejected. And He is rejected so that we who believe in Him would never be rejected by the Father. Our salvation, our forgiveness of sins, the fact that we can have eternal life with God and a future pain-free, suffering-free world only comes as a result of suffering. It's good to be reminded the fact that God has used suffering as the very means of saving every single person in the world. Isn't that good to be reminded of? Suffering does have meaning. We often don't see that. We often see suffering or some type of pain as meaningless. But the God we worship is so big and so strong that he can, he can use what appears to be horrific at the moment to be glorious for all of eternity. Isn't that good news? I mean, especially at the cross, what appears to be horrific, the Son of God crucified is the climactic moment of all of history where God reveals his love and that we can be saved. In Jesus, we not only find meaning in pain, but we find hope. We need to remind people of that. We need to encourage people of that. So if you're in suffering, I pray it does encourage you, but if you're not experiencing pain, and maybe you're in a season of, um, of comfort, let's just say that, I want to encourage you that you would go alongside those who are around you, because I'm guessing you don't have to look very far to find someone who is struggling. So David has talked to himself. He's remembered who God is. He continues to pray, and we're told that God has answered. So how has God answered? I believe in verses 5 through 8, we see the answer. We really see the result of God's answer, and we see a faith must be lived. Once we're reminded of who God is, the proper response is not to hide under the covers or under the pillows, but it's to walk. The point is to go forth in the light of the truth that we know. That's what faith is. Faith is believing in the promises of God over the reality of our experiences. Because what sin does, it places our experiences at an exalted position over the truth of God's word. And it says, this is what happened, therefore this is truth. This is not. And we submit God's word to our experience. But God's word shows us that we hold his word as truth and we submit our experiences knowing that we are sinful and therefore we often interpret our experiences with a sinful lens and we submit that to the truth of God's word. And when we do that, we can walk forward now in the light. Not saying that it's easy to go forward not saying that this takes place in a day. You might have to do this for weeks, for months. It's important to have, again, community to come around you. But the character and promises of God are meant to fuel obedience and to give us boldness. That's what we have God's word for. So we keep seeing the truth of who God is, what he has done, so we can keep walking and trusting in who God is. Let me say it another way. 
God's, and I think this is the only blank you have, so it's really easy this week. God's past grace fuels our confidence in his future grace. God's past grace fuels our confidence in his future grace, meaning when we look, David looks, or we look backwards, we see in God's word these historical things that God has done revealing his grace. We see that through the life of Israel. We see that especially in Jesus Christ. We can even do that in our own lives. We can see, I've seen how God has been faithful and carried me throughout these times of my life. The reason we look backwards is to remember who God is, what he has done, so we can continue to walk forward knowing that the God who has acted faithfully and graciously will continue to act faithfully and graciously. Does that make sense? Past grace fuels obedience in future grace. And that's really how we live the Christian life. And in essence, you could boil it all down to that. Your obedience will hinge on you trusting in God for future grace. Because if you don't think God's going to act faithfully for you as you walk forward, you won't be obedient. And the way that is strengthened is by looking backwards. And for us, we primarily look backwards to the cross of Jesus, where we see his faithfulness very clearly. But let's look at what David does. Verse 5, David sleeps. His restless heart has found rest in God. He knows that if God has protected him in the past, he will surely protect him in the future. Verse 6, David says he's not afraid of many thousands of enemies. That sounds like a lot of enemies, thousands of enemies. Does anyone have thousands of enemies? That seems like a lot of enemies. Maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 100, but thousands? That's... He's not a popular guy. So why does David not need to fear these? Because his God is his shield. Because his God is bigger. Because his God defeated Goliath with a, sling, a slingshot. Because his God destroyed the walls of Jericho with instruments and shouts. Because his God defeated the innumerable Midianite army. Remember that story with 300 puny guys? Story of uh, Gideon. David has remembered how God has graciously defeated all enemies. Therefore, he says, on the basis of who God is, I can keep walking forward. It doesn't matter if there's a thousand or ten thousand. I need not be afraid of them. Now, what I notice, or what I notice, and what I hope you notice, in verses 5-6, nothing has really changed since verses 1 and 2. I mean, he's writing this. And there hasn't been this massive change in history since verses 1 and 2. Life has not all of a sudden got easier. Therefore, verses 5 and 6 become better. Therefore, in verse 7, he says, Arise, O Lord. Or verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. He's still in the pain of suffering. Situation hasn't changed, but yet his focus has changed. No longer is he focusing on the experience and on the situation, but rather he's directing his focus upon God and who he is. You ever go to the carnivals or the mirrors and you see the, or the carnivals or the fairs and you see those mirrors that they have and they distort what you look like, make you look like really tall and skinny or really uh, squashy? I think that's the... Nice word, squashy and short, and, um, or whatever they do, they, they twist you all around. Is that reality? 
You hope not. Wouldn't that be terrible if those were that mirrors in your house? You're like, wow, do I really look like that every day? Um, it's when, it, when we look at those mirrors, that's like what sin does to our experiences. That's why we become filled with anxiety. That's why we think God no longer loves us and has left us because we're interpreting our situation through a distorted lens, which is what sin does. But when we come to God's word, we see the truth of who God is. Therefore, we come to a real mirror that actually tells us who we are and what we look like. That's what God's word does. It accurately tells us who God is and who we are in light of that. In verse 7, we see David continues to cry out to God, Notice, he's still talking to God. He's still talking. Talking to God wasn't an event that happened just in the beginning of suffering, but as he goes forward, and notice the words he says, arise. What would that anticipate, the word arise? What would God be doing if he needs to arise? Maybe he was sitting. Or at least it appears to David because of the situation that God is not standing, that God is not there in presence. So he's calling God, arise. He's still talking to God. He's still asking God, I need you. He's saying, save me. Let us never stop talking to God. I ask you, have, have you stopped? Think about it. Are you talking to God regularly? What do you talk to God about? If you're not talking to God, then you're not exercising faith. At least a major expression of our faith. God is our great Father. And as children, as His children, He loves to listen to us. I hope you know that. He loves to listen to you. Loves to listen to you. And He loves for you to, listen, for you to cry out in pain. And as a father, I hear lots of painful cries from my children. Sometimes they're from the trampoline. They're from, you know, the room. But you know what? I don't go, oh my. Until he calls me in a very nice and appropriate way. That, no! You hear the cry and you come. Our father hears our cries. Loves when we cry out to him. Loves to respond to us. In verse 8, we see now David Praising God. Now just think, the, the psalm begins in heartache and pain and it ends in joy and triumph. Nothing has changed though. The situation is still very much the same. David's walking out into the wilderness. Shimei is still yelling at him. People have rejected him. His son still hates him. And yet he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David's faith has been strengthened so that even in Light of pain and suffering. He is praising God. Do you know that? You can praise God in pain and suffering. You can praise God when you've been rejected by everyone because God does not reject you. You can, be, you can praise God when you experience shame because God does not see you as shame. But he sees you as his dearly beloved child. Have you been praising God? I want to encourage you, especially if you're in a season where you're not struggling in suffering, begin praising now. Make it a practice of praising God regularly now so when you move into those seasons of times of difficulty, you'll be prepared to continue to praise God. When our praise of God dwindles, our trust in God will also dwindle. 
And of course, we come to the word Selah again. We now come, it's the last time in this psalm, and I think at this moment we're to be asking ourselves questions like, are we walking in faith or are we hiding under the covers and pillows of our circumstances? When David has reflected on his past act, on God's past actions and the amazing things, things he probably saw were like uh, the flood. He probably saw the ten plagues of the Egyptians, the Red Sea when God crushed the Egyptian army. And he was reminded of God and his power in these acts. Where we stand, we have the cross. We look back and we see the cross of Jesus. At the cross, we see the magnitude of God's grace and his love for us. We see his comfort, his wrath, and his justice. Listen to what John says in 1 John 4. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So this is the way God has revealed himself. That that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. So this is how God has revealed himself, the cross. This is how God shows us love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross of Jesus is the declaration that God loves you. It's at the cross God calls us to himself. So again, if, if you've believed in Jesus, then I want to encourage you that you are a child of God and you are therefore deeply loved by God. Sin will want you to not deny that truth. Sin will interpret your pain and suffering for why you are unlovable and why God is unlovable. But those are lies. For if you believe in Jesus, then you are deeply loved. And Romans 8 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God killed his son so you and I could be saved, will he hold anything else back from us? No. He did the greatest act. Therefore, him coming alongside of us in every aspect of our life is so much easier than what he did at the cross. He will, of course, be faithful to us in all circumstances. The cross is God's promise. It's his declaration that if we believed in him, there is nothing that can overcome you, and there's nothing that can separate you from his love. We're going to go into communion, and as we do, I just want to encourage you, um, stop listening to yourself. Start talking to yourself. Start talking to yourself. Remind yourself of who God is. Remind yourself of what God has done. Surround yourself with other believers. I encourage you, if you're, if you're a believer, um, whether you're struggling with anything now or not, begin pursuing community. Be with other believers. Um, and if you know people who are struggling, don't wait for them to come to you. Because what does sin do? It wants us to isolate ourselves. And we can say, well, hopefully they'll overcome that sin and come to us. Maybe. Or we can just go to them. So I want to encourage you, look for those who are struggling around you. And remember, being a Christian doesn't mean we're not going to experience pain. Being a Christian doesn't protect us from trouble. In fact, if anything, we could see being a Christian is going to bring us into trouble. But what we can know is that there is a God who is stronger. He is our shield, he is our glory, and he will lift our heads. And as we look back at past grace, all that God has done, we'll continue to be, walk, to be able to walk faithfully 
in the, in the future and will continue to be able to praise him. Um, I want to go ahead and invite the men to come forward. Um, and I want, to, I want to pray as we go into communion. So men, you can come forward and I'm going to pray for communion. Our Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for your text. I thank you that God... You are the God of all comfort and that you comfort us in all pain. I thank you that, God, we don't have to fix ourselves before we come to you. I thank you, God, that we can simply cry out to you at any moment and you hear us. I thank you, Father, that you have given us your word that documents, that reveals your actions of grace and love. That we would, that our faith would be fueled to continue to trust in you in the future. And I pray, God, if there's anyone who is struggling here today, that your words would be comfort to them. And they would know that they are deeply loved by you. In your name, Jesus, amen.